Uh, today we're in Genesis 18 and 19. So last week we saw God's plan for the covenant versus man's plan for the covenant. And when man tried to do things, when Abraham tried to do things in his own power, it was a total failure. Uh, the consequences which we still feel today and we still are dealing with. But when God plans, when God's plans are into action, right, it's perfect. And it brings us to Christ. It brings us to the revelation of Christ. But there's one moment we're going to focus on today that continues in this. One moment that God says, uh, he tells Abraham that you will go before me. And what I said was that revelation of God brings responsibility to man. When God reveals himself to us, he gives us responsibilities to do. We go before God. And our lives, our actions, reveal God to the world. So today we're going to see two men who take their responsibilities very differently very differently. And those two men reveal God in different ways. So the big question today is we're going to have to get real personal because this one kind of becomes abstract. The real question, the big question today is how well do our lives reveal Christ? And I mean us personally. You and me, us, we personally. Not in a big theological sense where we could sit down and talk about that, right? But my life individually, how, how well do I take the responsibilities that God has given me? And we start with Abraham. Uh, Abraham is the only man that the Bible calls a friend to God. So he starts with Abraham and we see how he takes his responsibilities. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant, please. Let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So we start with Abraham. And there's something we have to understand. It's called dramatic irony. In the literary world, we call this dramatic irony. We know as readers that this is God and two angels. God and two angels. It says the Lord appeared to him. But there's no indication that Abraham knew it was God. He finds that out. He figures that out later. He figures that out later. But right away, he doesn't recognize, he doesn't know it as God. Not yet. And that's important because the first ministry that we have to worry about, our first and foremost ministry, is serving God. But when we serve God, we find ourselves serving others. We find ourselves serving others. And that's what we have to key. That's the key we have to realize. To serve God means to serve other people. And there's some, uh, there's some principles we can take out of what Abraham does here to what it means to serve God. To what it means. First, uh, realize that Abraham is seeking to serve others, not himself. He sees these three strangers, rushes to them, bows down. How can I serve you? 
What can I do for you? He wants to serve other people. The Bible, when we love the Lord with all our heart, that love bleeds to other people. It bleeds to those around us. And that key is, the key is, we reveal God by serving others, not ourselves. But it goes a little deeper than this. See, next, we see that this ministry from Abraham is also a personal ministry. We've talked about this with Abraham before. Abraham doesn't just give the work to his servants. He doesn't just call out for things to be done. He gets help himself, and he goes and does it himself. He goes and gets those cakes made. He asks Sarah. We'll get to that in a minute. He goes and gets the calf. He goes and does these things. We reveal God by getting involved personally. Again, we've talked about this before. It's not a matter of just sending money somewhere or hoping someone else does the job. It's us putting our skin in the game and doing it ourselves as well. But it's more than that. It's an immediate ministry. Abraham doesn't wait for them to come to him. He doesn't wait for things to happen. He gets up and he goes. He sees an opportunity. He sees an opportunity and he goes and does it. He goes and takes advantage of it. When God gives us those opportunities, we also go and do. Don't wait. There is a time to be patient. But when God gives you those opportunities, go. Go. We reveal God by acting on the opportunities he gives us willfully and joyfully. Willfully and joyfully. We see that this is a speedy ministry. Abraham runs everywhere. He hastens. He goes here. He goes there. Realize this is an old man in the heat of the day doing this. And he's still rushing from place to place, making sure this is getting done and gets done quickly because he's giving everything he has, all of who he is. This is an old man. He's working with his whole heart. He wants it to be done well. He wants it to be done right. He's giving everything he has to God's work. He cares more for the work, excuse me, he cares more for the work than for his own comfort. We reveal God by working with our whole hearts. Our whole hearts. One of my favorite quotes from my commentator, Wearsby, is that a good day's work is, its best, is the best witness. Sometimes the best witness we can do is by giving our whole hearts to the job that he's given us. We also see this as a generous ministry. Abraham gives the very best to his strangers. He takes fine flour. He takes a good calf. He takes butter. He takes all the good stuff. He's not worried about financial losses. He's not worried about what he stands to gain, what these visitors are going to give him in return. He's worried about giving them the very best. Giving them the very best because we reveal God by trusting God to provide. We reveal God by trusting God to provide. We also see this as a humble ministry. Abraham falls on his face. He says, welcome to my home. And then as they eat, he stands nearby at attention, ready to serve them for whatever they would need. He's not worried about his status. He's not worried about what his servants will think of him. We reveal God by remaining humble. And finally, we see this as a cooperative ministry. The first thing he rushes to do is to get others involved. Specifically, of course, his wife. Abraham wants to get others involved, and it is a blessing to be involved in God's work. When we get to work for the Lord, 
it fills our hearts with something that's unimaginable. I know the first time we got to go and pack shoeboxes at the big shoebox plant down in Denver. Man, we worked for probably eight hours solid. And I don't think I took a break the entire day because I was having so much fun. And I was aching afterwards. My hands hurt, my feet hurt, everything hurt. And I didn't even care because it just filled me up so much because I was working for the Lord. And we got others involved because it's a blessing to be involved in God's work. We're not lone wolves trying to do this ourselves. In fact, part of being humble is asking for help and accepting help when it is offered. That's part of humility. We reveal God by working together as a family, by getting along as the church. Now, we should also realize that this very quickly becomes a checklist, and it's not a checklist. It's not, oh, I did this today, I did this today. It's not supposed to be read that way. Most of us would simply see what Abraham does here as common courtesy. He does these things simply because it's the right thing to do, because he wanted to do it. It's not him trying to get obligations done. He's being humble. He's helping those who need help. He's working together. These are things we teach kids to do. Because it's just stuff that it's just stuff you should do naturally. It's not a difficult, burdensome checklist. We should want to do these things. But we do struggle to accomplish them in God's way because of our sinful flesh. It can be difficult to do these things, but we should want to do them. And none of these things has any relation to Abraham's salvation. He does these things for the love of the Lord, for no other reason. But as he seeks to show the world God, these, his ministry, what he's doing here, are the vehicles that show the rest of the world that we are different. Because what seems like common courtesy to us becomes very difficult in the unsaved world. Very difficult. As we continue our narrative, we can start to see the order Abraham reveals God. We start to see the order. It starts, of course, with his own personal ministry, what he does, and then he starts branching outward. So verses 9 through 15. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. This is the moment where Sarah laughs at God. Sarah laughs at God and says, You can't do this. It's impossible at this point in time. This is also the moment where Abraham realizes, Oh, this isn't just some guy. This is the Lord. This is God. Because he says, I will return. He knows what Sarah is thinking, even though she's totally in a different room entirely. This is the moment where that dramatic irony breaks down and Abraham realizes 
he's serving God. But the first person he goes to, the first person he runs to, and the first person that he seeks to bless as he's serving the Lord is his wife, his family. You see, our ministry, our service, has to start at home. It starts with the ordained home that God has given us. It starts there. Abraham blesses his wife first. He goes to get her first. He still loves her. He still desires her. And he still wants her to be joyful, to be happy. When we seek to minister to the Lord, we start at home. We start at home. This is why the Bible commands, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Because your home ministry is what's going to reveal God to the rest of the world. So once he has his personal ministry and how that ministry looks, then he goes to his home and expands that. Then he expands it even further. And let's look at verses 16 all the way through 33. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, uh, Indeed now, uh, 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 I... Who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were uh, five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find forty five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there would be uh, forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there? So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed now, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abram, Abraham returned to his place. <laughs> he expands his ministry out to the lost world. And I love this because it's, it, it's, it's comical. It's almost funny. Right? Abraham and the Lord are looking at Sodom and it's a wicked, horrible place. More horrible than we could ever imagine. And the Lord's going to go destroy it. right? And Abraham is, is and we'll get to what he's saying here. He's kind of going back and forth with God. What if there's just 50 people? 40, 30, 20, 10? Because 
he knows there's probably not 10 righteous people in that city. And in fact, the number is zero. There are zero righteous people in that city. He's, Abraham is specifically worried about one person, his nephew, Lot. He's worried about one person. But he expands his ministry to the lost world, to everyone else, to everyone in Sodom, as we should see everyone in the world who is not saved. And he sees this. He ministers primarily through intercession. He goes to the Lord, and we should see this as praying. Praying to God, would you please just save this one? Would you please just save this one? And he knows the Lord. He says, I know you are righteous. I know you are good. I know you won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Because you are God. And he's obedient to his word. He stays obedient. He does all the service. He serves his family. He loves them. He takes care of them. He believes in God. He stays obedient. And this is the part to understand about this conversation back and forth. Because this is not arguing. This is not Abraham arguing with God, a petulant child demanding his way. This is him humbly begging to God. Humbly begging to God, please, God, just save this one. Just save this one. It's more like Abraham is before a judge. Because he is before a judge. He's dressed in his nice suit. He takes his hat off. And he just, please, just show mercy. He's not arguing back and forth. He's humbly pleading for God. Please, just save one. It's a deep compassion for the lost. A deep compassion for the lost. Notice, compassion for the lost, no matter their sin. What's going on in Sodom is horrible. Wicked, nightmarish stuff. But it doesn't matter to Abraham because he still loves Lot. And it's no matter, no matter if Abraham has to do this work alone. Sometimes it feels like we go to the Lord in prayer asking for that one person and we do it by ourselves because we love that person. And I hope each and every one of us has that person in our mind that we would go to God and say, God, please, just this one. Just this one. I love this one. And we'd expand that to everyone. Of course we would. But we'd all have that one person that we'd beg and plead God for. Because we are called to intercede before the lost. We are called to pray for them, no matter their sin. We forget that sometimes. No matter what they have done, we have done just as bad. We are just as worse as sinners. No matter what they have done, we can go to the Lord and beg and plead for their salvation. So the principle that we see here, the revelation of God brings the responsibility of revealing God to the world. We do this primarily by serving other people. All of those other things are key points. Hope you can remember them. Hope you get them. At the end of the day, we do it by serving others. By loving other people. Abraham gets to serve the Lord directly. And someday we will get to do that as well. But on this earth right here, we serve God by serving other people. And now we go to the other person who takes these responsibilities vastly differently. Vastly differently. The other person we study today is Lot. Lot. 
Let's look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in and spend the night and wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back! Then they said, This one came in to stay here. He keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary trying to find the door. So a few things to recognize. One, Lot is a believer in God. He will be saved at the end of this. He will be saved at the end of this judgment. But he is chosen to live like the world. We find him at the gates of Sodom. Now, sitting at the gate, if we go back and read Ruth, sitting at the gate of a city meant you were not only a part of that city, you were a leader within that city. You helped make decisions within that city. Lot has risen in the ranks of this evil world and is now one of their leaders. He is clearly not living up to the responsibilities that came from God's revelation. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I'd imagine we can all think of someone like this as well. Someone who is a believer, but has chosen not to live like it. And I hope that we are not someone like this. If you find yourself aligning more with Lot than Abraham, repent, turn back, and ask God for opportunities to grow. But the differences between Abraham and Lot start right away. Right away, with their two locations. Abraham is a pilgrim. He's walking towards God, putting in the effort to get closer to him. God comes to him in the day, in the light. Lot is sitting in a city far away from God with no attempt to get closer to him. They come to him in the night, in the darkness, because he is in the dark. Next, we see that the visitors are different. Abraham had three visitors, the Lord and two angels. Lot just has two visitors, the two angels, because the Lord is not welcome with Lot. The Lord is not welcome in Sodom, so he cannot go down there. He doesn't wish to go down there. He's not welcome there. Then we go to Lot's actions. He doesn't hasten to meet them. In fact, what we should probably see there is lethargy. It's barely getting himself up out of there to go do it. It's almost a sense of obligation. Do it because I have to do it. And he offers them the barest of hospitality. Come stay in my house. And then in the morning, 
quote verse 2, rise early and go your way. Rise early and go your way. Come stay the night and get out. Right? So much so that the, the angels, the, the two visitors are like, we'll just stay in the square. It's okay. You don't have to take care of us tonight. They clearly didn't sense that feeling of Lot really welcoming them in, right? And when the people of Sodom come to Lot's house, he offers to give in to their sins. He offers to allow them to sin. They can sin, do so with my daughters and not my guests. That's pretty wicked, pretty horrible. We can compare that to Abraham, who hastened to meet his guests, ran to them, gave them the best of what he had, the finest of meals, the good goat, made a feast for them so they could stay for hours, stay for hours and stay and be welcome. And he begged for mercy for the sinners. Lot begged the sinners to sin with someone else. We see the differences between Abraham and Lot. A man who accepts the responsibilities of being God's herald, and a man seeking to claim a relationship with God without living like it. Abraham, who has accepted his responsibilities and is trying to serve God, and Lot, who claims to know the Lord, but is not living like it, refuses to accept those responsibilities. The issues continue. Let's look at verses 12 all the way through 26. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-laws he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to him, Please, no, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your side. You have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But can I not escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die? See, now this city is near enough to flee to it. It's a little one. Please let me escape there. It's not a little one. My soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will overthrow the city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities that grew on, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Okay? Here we can see Lot's attitude as judgment is coming. Lot's attitude as judgment is coming. They are literally about to destroy these cities. And if you've ever seen the archaeology of where they think they have found Sodom and Gomorrah, they can find pieces of glass. And it's the same kind of pieces of glass that they'll find at nuclear testing sites. He raised those cities to the ground. 
in an instant without thought. And it's a beautiful place for a city. Cities have been there for thousands of years before this point in time. And yet after this, cities were never built there again because nothing could be there again. So it's remarkable what God did. And this is truly a, sh a, a quick glimpse of what God will do at the end of days. Right? But we see Lot is arguing. He lingers. He takes his time. He gets to go to another city. It's closer. It's right over there. I don't really want to go that far. Right? He has no gratitude. No gratitude for having been saved. They have to literally take his hands, grab him, and pull him out of there. Will the man not wake up? Will the man not get a clue? And we see that he has no influence in this town. He thought he was this leader. He sat at their gates. He, saw, he thought among them, right? They had already turned against him. They were going to do worse to him than they were going to do those other men. Now he goes to his son-in-laws. And they laugh at him. They think he's joking. They ignore him. And they don't leave. His wife and daughters, they don't want to go either. The angels take their hands and drag them out as well. So much so that his wife turns back because she wants that city so badly. Because she would rather be there than whatever they're taking them to. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. She's so devastated that she's lost her home. She cares more about that than she does about what's in front of her. And we see the consequences of Lot's actions. Lot loses everything. He has nothing. He is barely saved at the last moment with nothing left, no treasure in heaven. When Christians seek to serve themselves, as Lot did, when they fail to love their neighbor and they care more for the world than for God, they should expect nothing more than what Lot ends up with. Nothing. The final judgment came without warning. And so the verses 27 through 29. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up to the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the seas of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. It came without warning to the people of Sodom. But Abraham had warning. Abraham, our faithful Christian, our faithful believer, who is doing the right thing, doing what God had asked him to do, he knew it was coming. And if you've read the end of the Bible, we know what's coming. Abraham is not part of that judgment. He's nowhere neither. He's safe, far away, looking out, and probably very saddened by what he sees. Lot was saved by God's grace, but has nothing to show for it. He's saved, but barely. And the people of Sodom are completely lost. They're gone. Their story is over. Now, we can't skip this last part just because it makes us uncomfortable. Let's finish 30 through 38. Then Lot went up out of Zorar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. 
for he was afraid to dwell in Zorar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us as the custom of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and, he will, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know what she, when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. You go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. But we really see the depths of Sodom's depravity. These girls may have been virgins, but they were by no means innocent. They were by no means unaware of the world around them. And we see, by extension, Lot's wickedness and his failure to lead even his family. Even his family. The Moab and the Ammon people are known for their evil. Of course, they are enemies of the Jews. Amos 1.13 talks about the Ammonites specifically and how they like to rip open pregnant women, women who are with child. They were known for their evil. But in this, we also see God's redemption. The most famous Moabite is Ruth. Ruth was also a Moabite. She is of the line of David, who is, of course, of the line of Christ. God's redemption is for all people, including people who had their start like this. Because this is where this entire story should take us. The ultimate herald of our Lord, Jesus Christ. God in flesh, Emmanuel, God among us who came down to us. God listened to Abraham's intercession and he saved Lot. And he listens to Christ's intercession for us. Jesus is patient with us. And he died for those in Sodom. Us. Lot did not deserve to be saved. But here's the secret. The secret we so often forget and don't want to realize. We didn't deserve either. We did not deserve to be saved either, but he came to earth and he saved us because we couldn't do it ourselves. And which is, this is why we perform communion. As a reminder, not because it imparts salvation, but because it reminds us, it gives us a minute to reflect, to reflect on our relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. And it gives us a chance to thank him for his sacrifice for us. So we'll go now.